Welcome to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. This podcast is brought to you by SavingYouTaxes.com and hosted by J. Barry Watts. As an advanced tax strategist and enrolled agent federally licensed by the IRS, Barry is uniquely qualified to go deeper into the Internal Revenue Code than most accountants. He understands and interprets its provisions explaining how they'll help you reduce income taxes you owe so you can direct that previously wasted tax money into tax-free accounts that you can enjoy in your retirement years. Now, on today's episode... Welcome back to the Truth About Taxes and Retirement podcast with J. Barry Watts and Eric Burleson of SavingYouTaxes.com. Does pondering capital gains make your head hurt? Well, Barry and Eric have the answer. In fact, they've got lots of answers to questions about avoiding capital gains. Gentlemen, let's start with what is a capital gain and are there different types? Well, before we do that, I'd like to answer your question about does pondering capital gains make my head hurt? <laughs> right. And the answer is no, it makes my wallet hurt, <laughs> my checkbook. So that's where the hurt is. Uh, so we're going to tell you, though, how to get rid of some of that hurt today. And uh, that's uh, what's exciting about this uh, broadcast. You know, the interesting thing about what we do here is we recognize that our topic is not necessarily engaging. It's not like, oh, boy, I can't wait to get home and, and choose between my favorite sitcom and listening to the podcast on uh, the truth about taxes and retirement. But the fact is, the things that we're talking about are very important. And one of the very important things that we talk about today is going to be capital gains. And this uh, conversation is going to apply to any kind of capital gains. Let me give you some examples of what those might be. Uh, Let's say you own a piece of real estate and they discover oil or gold or whatever on that property. So suddenly your property is worth a whole lot more than it was the day before they made that discovery. Mm -hmm. That increase in value is a gain in your capital. And Uncle Sam intends to get a part of that. Let's say that you've got uh, a large apartment complex you own or a commercial building of some type, a manufacturing building, or maybe you've just put together a string of rental houses and you own 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 of those. Well, uh, over time, maybe that property has appreciated in value. Now, as the property has appreciated in value, you've been depreciating it on your taxes each year. And so what that means is on paper, it's showing to be worth less and less and less each year, but it's in reality becoming worth more and more and more. So when the time comes to sell that property and to settle it all out, what's going to happen is you're going to have a huge gain in capital, the actual value for which you sell it, minus what your paper says it is worth. So the so depreciation how capital gain works. So the depreciation means nothing then. It, well, exactly. Depreciation is just kicking the can down the road. Depreciation is, is tax savings today, but it's tax savings that you'll have to make up for somewhere down the road. That's mm-hmm. correct. And so here's one more example of a capital gain that, that might make sense to people. Let's say you bought a stock, whatever your favorite company is, and let's say you bought that stock at ten dollars. And you've held it for years and years. I had a guy in my office this week who had done something very similar to this. And now let's say that that stock trades at $900 per share. Hmm. You bought it at $10 a share. A little quick math here. $890 worth of gain per share. And you bought 1,000 shares of that. So you've got an $890,000 gain in your capital. And all of those trigger the capital gains tax. But when it, when is it triggered? 
was triggered at the realization. And we're going to talk about when okay. it's realized and what the difference is between a realized gain and an unrealized gain uh, is here in just a few moments. All right. You said uh, we're going to talk about a legal strategy that will eliminate those capital gains. Legal strategy, so it's got to be for real, right? Well, yes, it's definitely for real. We don't talk about pretend things here on the podcast, but we do talk about things that people don't know about and they aren't aware of. And I would bet you a dollar to a donut that if we had 20 CPAs in the room listening to this conversation today, 19 of them, maybe all 20 of them, would not have heard of this strategy to eliminate capital gains. And yet it's um, encoded in the statutes and it's easy to use if you know how to use it. And so what we're going to talk about today is called the general power of appointment hmm. and how understanding the general power of appointment and using it properly can eliminate the capital gains that you have to pay on highly appreciated assets, buildings, stocks, property, whatever it is that you've got that has a big capital gain embedded in it, a general power of appointment can make that capital gain disappear. So tell me about this. Well, first you have to understand how capital gains work. When you make money from working, you pay a tax on that money. It's withheld from your paycheck. And then you take the after-tax money and you spend some of it to live on and you accumulate the rest of it, let's say, in a savings account. And when you get enough of it built up over in the savings account, you may take that money and you invest it. And you invest it in something that goes up in value. And then when you sell that thing that went up in value, you pay a tax on the profit you made with the money that you had already paid the taxes on. So welcome to America. That's a capital gain. It's double taxation. Tax. That's double taxation. Well, it's not yeah. just double taxation. We're going to tax you every time because the profit that you made on that, we're going to take it probably and reinvest it and you'll make another profit and you're going to get to pay a tax on that down the road too. Eric, right, you said the, you had a story on this. Yeah, that's the part that I that I just hate is that you've already paid taxes on it. Then you've accumulated this wealth and you're trying to to risk risk it. You're you're the one stressing about it, whether it's rental property or you put it in the market, it's it's your investment. You're the one stressing, but the government gets to profit off of your sweat and and the stress that you went through. I'll never forget I had a moment on the House chamber when I was a member of the House of Representatives where uh, one side wanted to tax. They wanted to increase the taxes on capital gains. And I was able to enlighten some people about this topic by telling this story. So imagine a family owns a farm. They own 100 acres. 50 years ago, they bought the 100 acres. The question I asked was, how much was that family worth 50 years ago? The answer is they were worth 100 acres. Then today, they sell that 100 acres. How much is that family worth today? Well, they're still worth 100 acres. But because of inflation and because the value of a dollar has gone down. And to buy that same 100 acres today, you'd have to spend a lot more money than you did 50 years ago. Strangely, the government wants to tax you on the sale of that, of that acreage. So your point is it's kind of a false gain. It is a false gain in a lot of ways because let's say even gold, let's say you, you purchased a brick of gold 100 years ago or 50 years ago. And if the value of that value of the dollar went down and you sold that same brick of gold today, you are still worth one brick of gold. 
one ounce of gold. Well, you know, this is a uh, this is actually we can bring this to contemporary times. We're making this recording here in the late summer of 2020, and at this point in the year, gold is up in value about 29 percent on the year. So, if you bought your gold on January one, you would have a 29 percent capital gain on the gold today. However, this is the same year in which the government has printed, what is it, $4 trillion, $5 trillion new dollars that they've distributed now. And those dollars have undoubtedly been embedded into the economy in such a way that they will create inflation. And we haven't seen it yet. It's not been measured yet. So the point is your capital gains at 29%, but it's really not 29% because your dollar's worth so much less because they just put five or six trillion more dollars injected into the economy. Exactly. And mm -hmm. so basically it's government's way of taxing you on their ability to print more money. <laughs> so they've got control of that whole process. So just keep the, the printing presses running and just keep the taxes going higher and higher. Exactly. Now put mm, this in like a perspective that. with stock, because I think people listening, the, the more common folk don't really know about trading gold, but they do know about trading stock. Well, so let's say you were trading a stock and you, you bought that stock at $10 per share. Now, that is called your basis. So uh, basis is not something anybody talks to talks about, rather. They might say, well, I've only got $10 in it. But if you were talking with a group of accountants, the question would be, how much is your basis? Or sometimes it's called your tax basis. And your basis would be $10 per share. Now, let's say you've held that stock for a while. And today, that stock is worth $25 per share. So you take your $25 value today, perhaps the value at which you sell it at, if you sell that today, you subtract your basis, which is $10. And what that means is you have a $15 profit, but we don't tax profits, we tax gains. You have a $15 gain in capital on that particular stock. So that would be an example of how it works with the stock market. An example of how it might work with a piece of real estate is let's say that you had um, a piece of property that you gave $500,000 for. That is your tax basis. And that property goes up in value to $2 million. This is just like Eric's farm illustration that he was using a moment ago. So your $500,000 property is now worth $2 million. And uh, the basis on it, though, is only $500,000. So you have a $1.5 million embedded capital gain in that position. And if you sold that particular piece of property, you would have done what we call realizing the capital gain. And when you realize the tech capital gain is when you have to pay the tax on it. Until you sell it, it's called an unrealized gain. And unrealized gains are not taxable. But the sale triggers or realizes the capital gain. And that's when the capital gains tax kicks in gear. And how big is the capital gains tax? Big. It's big. Uh, and it just depends on who you're talking to about how big it can go. Historically, we have seen capital gains at much higher rates than they are today. And that's a part of our overarching message that we actually are in a season right now where taxes are lower than they have, have historically been. But the way capital gains are taxed, the rate at which they are taxed, depends on whether it's a long-term capital gain or a short-term capital gain. Now, Eric, why don't you share with us what the difference is between a long-term gain and a short-term gain? Well, this uh, the, the rates can differ depending on your income level. But if you made that gain within a short period of time, less than a year, then you're going to pay basically income taxes on that gain. So it depends on what your tax rate is at. And it could be between 
10% and 37% federally, and then you have to pay your state income tax as well. So when you say income tax, you mean that in the short term, uh, on a short term gain, which is less than 12 months, less than 365 days, if you buy it and sell it, the whole transaction round trip yes. happens in less than a year, then you're going to be taxed at the ordinary income rate. On short term gains, the capital gains tax is the ordinary income rate. That's, that's exactly right. And that could be, for example, I told you the story that we had purchased some property, some yeah. land, mm -hmm. and someone, before we even closed on the land, someone came in and tried to offer us to, to sell it to them for more than what we had purchased it for. And if I had done that, or if I do that, then I would not pay a capital gain of 15% or a long-term gain. I would pay a short-term gain, gain at, which is at ordinary income. And based on the rich salary that you senators get, that would be a high, high number. <laughs> well, it's higher than the 15%. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just messing with you a little bit there. So let's talk about long-term capital So gains. yes, the long-term is if you held on to, it, whether it's a stock or real estate or gold, whatever it is, if you held on to it for longer than 365 days, then you would pay 15%. It, that is, if your income is less than $441,000 a year, where, where that number came from exactly. But some that's politician how, probably yeah. invented that. Yeah, some bureaucrat or politician came up with that number, probably had to negotiate to that number at some point. So if you're less than 441, your tax rate's 15% long-term, but if you're 442, then your capital gains tax rate jumps to- 20%. 20%, and now, that's the federal rate. Yeah. I was gonna say, now, this is the federal rate. Tip. Here's a quick tip. A lot of people don't get into this level of the weeds, but if you've got, for example, let's say you had a short-term loss in, in the year, then you're able to offset that loss against other capital gains, right? But what some people don't realize is that what you want to do is you want to offset that short-term loss at that tax rate against a short-term gain at the same tax rate. Because if you don't have a short-term gain, then you're going to have to offset it against long-term gains, which at different tax rates, you're basically Uncle Sam is getting ahead at that one. So what you're saying is in any given year, if you have a taxable gain and a taxable loss, those two cancel each other out. They cancel each other out. And you want to make sure that you're canceling out a short-term loss with a short-term gain. And so one of the ways that we do that is when we get toward the end of the year in the month of December, sometimes we do what's called tax loss harvesting, or we could do capital gains harvesting, depending on how it has gone. Let's say somebody has in their portfolio, a substantial capital gain that they have realized that year. Now we're trying to just minimize the tax damage from that. So we'll look at their portfolio and say, is there anything that they've lost on this year where their portfolio has gone down? And we'll sell that particular item because any loss cancels out the gain and that reduces the overall taxes. So one simple strategy that is used by anyone with really any amount of money is to do tax loss harvesting toward the end of the year. But that's short term. How many people really look at short term gains? Aren't more people in an investment for the long term? Well, that's not necessarily short term because you could have sold something that you've held for five years and it just happened. This is the year in which you sold it. So this is the year in which the taxes come to you. And so the point is, if you find something else that has you've held for over 365 days that has a loss in it and you sell that and realize a loss, the loss goes against the gain and they can totally zero each other out if they were the same amount. 
Now, we're talking about short-term and long-term, either being ordinary income tax, if it's short-term, just like your W-2 income, or being either 15 or 20% long-term, depending on whether you're over $441,000 in income. But then there, those are only federal numbers. We have to add the state numbers to that. Now, here in the Missouri, where we practice and where we're domiciled, our headquarters is, uh, the Missouri tax on capital gains is 6%. It's the same as the income tax. So let's just say that you had a short-term gain in Missouri and you're at the top tax bracket, there's 37% federally. We're going to add another 6% to that for the state of Missouri. So now we're at 43%. Wow. But it's much worse. Yeah, wow. Well, here, wow. here, hang on to your wow. You're going to want to use it this time. <laughs> it's much worse if you live in the beautiful state of California out on the left coast, where the capital gain rate is 13.3%. So if you were at 37% federally plus 133 Quick maths is 47, 53.3%. And we're not done yet, but I'll let you catch your breath. Wow. <laughs> That's like getting a bonus at work and losing half of it to taxes. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the whole point. And nobody realizes this. They look at something they own. They say, wow, my stock's gone up. I'm, it's finally worth a million dollars. This is really neat. My property's gone up in value because they're putting in a new shopping mall next to it. And, and so that's going to make my property valuable because uh, Burger King's going to want to put a hot dog stand on it or whatever Burger King builds. I don't think they sell hot dogs, but you get the point. And so we all do the math in our head based on what gross values are. And what we don't realize, and this happens in financial planning all the time, only on days that end in Y, actually. What, <laughs> what you don't realize is that that gross number you see in your account, how much your account is worth, is irrelevant. Because it's not how much you have in your account. It's how much you can spend from your account. Just yesterday, just yesterday, I had a person that I'm helping with some cash flow planning who called me and he said, Barry, I don't understand how you've done this. We've got a million dollars, but you only show me distributing $720,000 from my IRA accounts. Now that particular person is in the 28% tax bracket, federally and state. Well, if you take a million dollars times 28%, how much do you have left? $720,000. So see, he's been moving toward retirement with excitement because he had a million dollar retirement in mind. No, no, no. What he has is a $720,000 retirement in mind. And I've actually had people get so offended by that, that they sort of break off the conversation because they're stunned by what they see. I'm remembering another guy who sold his business and I don't remember the exact numbers, but he sold it for somewhere around a million dollars. And when he got done, he only had about $775,000 left. And then he came to me and wanted to talk about whether he had enough money to retire and what it looked like. And of course he didn't have enough money to retire. And he was offended when he found that out. If he had come to us first, before he sold the business, we could have shown him several different ways that he could have reduced his capital gains. Or if he used the strategy we're talking about today, he could have totally eliminated those gains. Well, tell me about how to save. I mean, this is incredible. I, I had no clue that the state tax rates could boost the federal so much. Well, the bad news is we haven't finished talking about tax rates yet because uh -oh. there's one more there's one more tax that you don't know about. Uh, some people call it the Obamacare tax or the net investment income tax. It applies to people who make over $250,000 jointly. And you just add 3.8% to whatever the other numbers are to get to that number. So in the worst case, if you were at a short-term rate federally of 37%, 
And if you were in the state of California at 13.3% there, that puts us at 53.3. Now let's add the net investment income tax of 3.8. That puts us at 57 point, help me with my math, is it 57.1% in total tax that you would pay on that gain? So that means that you walk away with about 40 cents on the dollar. You sell something for a million bucks, and after you pay the taxes, you've got $400,000 left. That's very disheartening. Yeah, that's just insane. Yeah. Anybody, anybody, well, I was about to say something political there. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Go but ahead. Come on now. Vote for, anybody who can vote for the government <laughs> taking almost 60% of your money when you have, are the one who took the risk, you borrowed the money, you put all the sweat and the work and the fear and the, you, you were up at night worrying about whether your project was going to come off. Anybody who can do that and then be willing to hand the reins over to people to say, we're going to tax 50 or 60% of that. Well, I, I've just got to tell you, uh, please don't call our number because the way you think is not the way we think. <laughs> uh, our job is to help people reduce taxes, not increase them. All right. Tell me how you would go about that. All right. Well, there are some steps that we take in this process, and it's, it's incredibly important that you understand how these steps work. And the, the first thing that you've really got to get your brain around is this idea of basis. Now, you remember basis is simply how much you have invested in the thing. So if you put in $100 and it grows to be worth $1,000, you have a basis of $100. Mm -hmm. That's called the tax basis. Now, an interesting thing happens with regard to tax basis upon death. Death resets the basis to current market value. So let's say that your mom or dad bought the stock at $100 and the stock has now grown to be worth $1,000. They've got a basis of $100. There's $900,000 in taxable gain. So if mom and dad sold that stock, they're going to have to pay a tax on that $900,000 in gain. But if mom and dad passed away and gave that stock to you, allowed you to inherit it, upon their death, the value of that stock actually goes up. I should say the basis on that stock actually increases to what the stock's value was on the date of death. So if it had gone up in value to $1,000, mom and dad die, now the basis at which you inherit it is $1,000, and you don't have to pay tax on that $900 worth of gain that mom and dad had experienced. Now here's nitpicking. Say the mm -hmm. stock is owned by both mom and dad, and dad goes, but mom doesn't. Yeah, they need to both die. Oh, okay. In order, in order for that tax to, to uh, be avoided. Okay, I'll let them know. No, no, that, <laughs> well, we don't want to rush that. But, you know, it really is. A, here's where it becomes a thing. So somebody comes in and mom and dad have got some stock that they've held for a bazillion years and it's tremendous value increase on it. And they don't want to deal with the taxes, obviously, because of that. And they are really feeble. They've got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. Well, what we might say to the kids who are trying to guide and direct mom and dad in that is let's not sell it now and get the tax because mom and dad have a relatively short life expectancy. Let's just hang on to that. And mm. upon their death, then the, the basis goes up, the capital gain tax is wiped away, and then you can distribute it to the kids and they won't have to pay that tax. Now, there's something tricky that happens to basis when you have real estate that you need to know about. So let's say that you invest a million dollars in a property that includes a building. And over the years, you depreciate that building 
And every year you take depreciation, it reduces your tax basis. So, so depreciation helps you save tax dollars today, but it reduces the basis in the value of that property. And over time, you can have your basis reduced down to zero. So what that means is when you sell that property that may be worth $2 million that you only gave a million for, and so in your mind, you're making a million-dollar gain, but on paper, and as far as the tax man is concerned, because you had depreciated that property down to zero, you're really going to pay taxes on the full $2 million worth of gain, not just on your $1 million worth of profit. Ouch. Well, yeah. and you yeah. still want to do that because while you're depreciating, you're depreciating. If you have income, you're depreciating against the income at ordinary income tax rate. That is a benefit. At least you're not you're not depreciating against capital gains tax uh, rate or long term rate. So, Eric, here's a little idea for you because you actually own some rental real estate. Yes. You're depreciating it currently, aren't you? Yes. Now, I know you've not owned it long enough for it to be depreciated out, but let's say you had and it was all depreciated out. What if I could reset your basis and get your depreciation all over again? I am all ears. Okay. Well, that's what we're going to teach you about how to do is how to, how to reset your depreciation. Because if you use the power of appointment strategy, it can restore that basis for depreciation purposes. So you've been depreciating it over the past 25 years and you get to start all over and depreciate it yet once again, because you use the power of appointment. So let's talk about what this power of appointment really is and how it works. When you give someone a power of an appointment, you are giving them control over your property. Now that doesn't mean that they're responsible for getting up every day and looking at the property and managing the property and those kinds of things. It just means that they have a legal vested authority that they could exercise if they wanted to in that property. And so let's say you appointed your elderly father. You gave him a general power of appointment over this piece of property. Well, Upon his death, the basis in that building steps up to its current value, and that's how you would be able to start depreciating that again. So you, you really want to know that person. That's, that's, yes. that's my first thought is you really <laughs> want to know and trust that person. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about in a few moments when we consider what the risks are to this. But the, the big principle that we're learning here is that upon the death of whoever the appointed person is, it resets the basis to current value. So you and I are sitting in a building right now that I personally own. I give my dad a power of appointment in this property and my dad is still healthy and going strong, but he is 77 and he probably will not outlive me. And so right now I've got a capital gain in this building, but uh, if I give dad a power of appointment over this building, when dad dies, then the, my basis in the property steps up to the value of the property on the date of his death. And it also restores to me my ability to do all those depreciations all over again. And what this really does is it frees up your capital. Because if you've got a big capital gain built in there, that handcuffs people. Because mm -hmm. they're like, I don't want to sell it. I had a guy walk in this week. He had $1.8 million. And he, it was all in stocks that had gone up in value. He didn't have any stocks that had lost any money. And he was miserable because he couldn't sell anything because he had made the mistake of selling something a while back. And as a result of selling it, it actually triggered taxes on his social security and it caused the taxes on his Medicare to go up as well. Not the tax, but the cost on his Medicare to go up as well. So he said, I, I got a big ouch here that I wasn't expecting because yeah. I experienced these capital gains. 
And so what we're talking about is how you that can handcuff you and how this strategy we use can really take the handcuffs off and free up your capital and allow you to do some other things. But now, as Eric said, you really have to trust this person. Well, it's got to be the right person. So let's talk about how this works and, and how it begins from the start. First of all, we involve an attorney because there has to be a trust document drafted, which grants the power of appointment to some other person. And then we have to decide who are we going to appoint? Now, first of all, you don't want to appoint someone who has a longer life expectancy than you. Because remember, we're looking to use their death as the opportunity to step up the capital gain. And so ideally, we want to appoint someone whose life expectancy is shorter than ours, who may in fact have a very short life expectancy. So elderly parents, elderly grandparents are good choices. Or perhaps a, a person your age or younger, but who has a terminal illness, you could go ahead and appoint that person. Anyone who has a relatively short life expectancy would be a good choice of someone to appoint. Now, when we appoint them, you have to realize it means you give them power to direct the asset, power to direct the asset. So it's got to be someone that you implicitly trust who is not going to hurt you. So let's say that your mama likes your bum of a brother more than she likes you. You know, the brother I'm talking about, the one who hasn't had a job in two decades. Well, we don't want to give mama a power of appointment because mama might just feel sorry for brother and you've done well. And mama could, if she wanted to, she could direct your property to the benefit of your bum of a brother. So that would be the reason that you don't appoint someone that you can't trust to handle the assets properly. And so there's a way that we protect against that. First of all, when we give this power of appointment, we make the power of appointment testamentary. What that, that's a lawyer talk, by the way. And what that means is that this power can only be exercised or triggered by their passing away. And so they can't give it away while they're still living. So if you did make a mistake and you appointed the wrong person and they're still alive, you can just go in and unappoint them and take that away and erase the whole thing. But if they die and you have a testamentary power of appointment, then their death is what triggers the giving of the property to someone else if they have taken steps to do that. Now, obviously, if it's someone you trust, they would not have taken steps to do that. And so one of the other things that we do is we make sure that in the, the trust document, the only person that they can appoint the property to would be one of their heirs. So if it's your parents and you have no siblings, then you are good to go <laughs> because there's no one else for them to give the money to. You're 100% safe. But if you have siblings, you have to be sure that your parents are trustworthy and they're not going to, to do the wrong thing. So the big deal here is you've got to give enough control to the appointed person so that the IRS will view the asset as being included in their estate, in your parents' estate for this example. And that means that you'll get a step up in value upon their death. Somehow I don't think I want my kids coming to me and saying, hey mom, how about a general power of appointment for you? I think they're looking too far ahead. Well, I can understand that because you're a relatively young woman. But there comes a point in time where this power of appointment would have been handy. For example, just two years ago, my grandmother died at 94. Now, had we given her a power of appointment at 92, uh, and obviously when you're 92, you have a shortened life expectancy. We don't know. You could still live mm -hmm. another decade, but most people are not going to. 
Had we given her a power of appointment at 92, it would have wiped out a whole lot of capital gains that were still embedded in our family's assets. But to my knowledge, no one in the family did that. And that's a very important observation there. Notice the word I used was, to my knowledge. Now, when you appoint someone, it's not something that you want to publish loudly. You don't want to take the appointment document and bind it and keep it on the coffee table for everyone in the family to read. See, that was my question. Because oh. I, I would think that and I, it might depend on the family because some families, the, the siblings might have a full understanding and it might be clear and obvious so that whenever the passing occurs and if if this appears in a will or at least they they don't question or wonder what was this what's what's happening here why is this property being transferred well it it does depend on the family there's no question assuming you're giving an appointment to someone in the family Mm. so there are families where this would not work you just can't do it but there are a lot of families where this would work and in the case of my own grandmother for example had she been appointed well she probably would have very soon forgotten that she had been appointed And it wouldn't have meant anything to her. She wouldn't have remembered it. Therefore, she wouldn't have taken any action on it. But because she legally, there's a word for you, legally held that appointment at the time of her death, then as far as the IRS is concerned, that triggers that asset being counted into her estate, which causes the step up in value. So realize if you don't publish this abroad, you don't print it and put it on the coffee table for everybody in the family to read, you just quietly appoint grandma or whoever it happens to be. Grandma takes the appointment. Grandma forgets the appointment. Grandma doesn't have the documents. She doesn't remember that she Mm -hmm. had the appointment. Grandma would have to hire an attorney to go dig into this and to take these assets and direct them to someone else anyway. But because you have given grandma that power of appointment, then you have effectively positioned your assets so that it will receive the step up in value on grandma's death. Does it matter how much the person you appoint has in assets? It does matter. And here's why. You don't pay any estate taxes currently in the United States if your asset value upon your death is less than $11.4 million. So for the vast majority of people, obviously, estate taxes are not a problem. If grandma is worth $2 million, what that means is you could give her a power of appointment for up to $9 million. And you add your $9 million to her $2 million, you're at $11 million, you're still under the threshold that would result in taxes. Now, the people who use these kind of strategies are fairly sophisticated people. And oftentimes it might be someone who already had an estate tax problem was bumping up against that $11 million figure for the single person, $22 million for the married person. And so you would never want to give a power of appointment to someone who already was in danger of having to pay estate taxes themselves. You want to give the power of appointment to someone for whom that is not a big risk or a big danger. Right. My kids can ask me. Say again? My kids can't ask me. Yeah, okay. Well, (laughs) sorry to hear about that, but uh, I understand. That's the way it goes. Most people's kids can't ask them. So one of the ways that we structure these, remember I told you we make them testamentary so that they trigger upon death. I told you that we make it so they can only give, appoint the asset to someone who is in their airline that would limit it to you and your siblings, perhaps. But one of the other things that we do is we structure it to say that the amount to which they're appointed is 
whatever the applicable credit is, which currently is $11.4 million per person, less that person's own estate. So that's where if mom and dad were worth a million dollars and you gave them an appointment up to the $11 million figure, but they've only got a million dollars, well then $10.4 million of the appointment could be activated for them. And at least you would reduce your taxable position by that $10 million. So that's how we avoid getting in a position where we wind up paying more tax than we inadvertently intended to. So this stuff is complicated. If your brain doesn't hurt yet, it ought to. But this is what we do. And I just have to back up and ask you this question. So let's say you've got a million dollar capital gain, like we were talking about at the top of the podcast. And you're looking at paying upwards of $500,000 in tax, or let's make it much less than that. Let's just say that you're going to pay about $200,000 in capital gains tax. Is it worth going through some effort to save that $200,000? How much work would you be willing to do? And if the work only involves coming and sitting at the table and having a conversation, engaging your brain enough to understand it at a basic level, and writing a check for a couple of thousand bucks to have a document drafted, and it saves you $200,000 or $300,000 or $500,000, is that not an excellent return on your money and your time? I would say it's pretty awesome. Well, yeah, I think so. And, and this is why, you know how people always grumble about the rich people getting richer? Well, it's because the rich people are willing to do this kind of stuff. The rich people realize the value in this. They realize the leverage on time and the leverage on money that comes from implementing a strategy like this. And they say, I want to do it. And they embrace it. And they don't pay the capital gains that the common ordinary man on the mm -hmm. street has to pay because he didn't know the strategies that would help him avoid capital gains taxes. And that, dear listener, is the truth about capital gains. Now, Barry, Eric, how can people reach you if they want to talk more about this? Well, the easiest way to get in touch with us is simply to go to our website, savingyoutaxes.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast so that it'll show up in your podcast feeds. And there you can find a phone number and an email where you can reach out to us and engage us in whatever kind of conversation would be most helpful to you. We're happy to talk about these things. This is what we do. It actually gets our juices flowing because we enjoy helping people and we enjoy seeing them get excited and celebrate when they're able to take hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of expense that they're anticipating and erase that expense and keep that money in their own pocket. And so the way to get started with that is simply to reach out to us through our website, savingyoutaxes.com. Barry Watts, Eric Burleson of savingyoutaxes.com. As Barry said, subscribe to the Truth About Taxes and Retirement podcast simply by using the subscribe button right on this page. And of course, you can share with the share button. Thank you for listening to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of SavingYouTaxes.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional tax and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your own qualified advisor with any questions you may have regarding taxes and investing.